Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. You have found the most informative hour of sports radio you'll listen to all week long and the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in this week. We're bringing you a best of Sports Business Radio edition this week. We'll be looking back at several of my favorite guest interviews over the past year. In segment two, Max Eisenbud. He's with IMG. He's the agent for tennis star Maria Sharapova, the most lucrative female athlete on the planet. He joined us last September. It was a memorable interview. Stick around for that interview in segment two. In segment three, one of my favorite owners in all of sports, Gavin Maloof, the co-owner of the Sacramento Kings. He joined us last November, and he actually joined us right after the vote on a new arena for the Kings. That vote got shot down, so we'll have his thoughts right after that happened in segment three. We'll also talk about his Carl Jr. commercial, a really fun interview with Gavin Maloof in segment three. In segment four, we thought it would be fitting for this week, the weekend of the Final Four, Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA, he joined us last November as well, and we talked about a plethora of things, everything having to do with college athletics, should athletes be paid, should there be a BCS, all kinds of things that you've always wanted to know from the NCAA, that takes place in segment four when we look back on the interview with Dr. Miles Brand. A couple of other notes, visit our website at sportsbusinessradio.com. Email your comments and questions to info at sportsbusinessradio.com. Listen to Sports Business Radio on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page. You can have our show downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player every week automatically so you never miss a show. Check out our blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. We are blogging on sports business topics every day. You can check us out there. I'm very excited to look back on these interviews. I hope you enjoy them as much as I enjoyed doing them. It was really fun to catch up with these three people. And we will be back with you next week for a live show. We're going to look behind the scenes of the Masters, probably my favorite event of the year. You're listening to the best of sports business radio. Stick around. Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
one-on-one -on -one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Max Eisenbud with IMG Tennis. He is the agent for tennis superstar and model Maria Sharapova. Max, thanks for taking time to join me. Hey, no problem. Glad to be a part of the show. So, Max, we all know what a superstar Maria has become, but I think she's got a real interesting story when she was younger coming over to the United States with her father and then the story of how she was discovered. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story in the early years of Maria Sharapova? Sure. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, obviously she's been with her dad, you know, uh, and her parents back in Russia, and they had to make a couple uh, pretty tough decisions uh, you know, when Maria was about uh, six years old, she traveled to Moscow to play in a clinic, and uh, Navratilova saw her hitting out of a bunch of girls and, you know, basically picked her out and said, you know, she has some talent. At the time, I think her dad was knew that they had to make a move. Uh, at the time, the facilities in Russia weren't great. Obviously, the weather's not great. A lot of the best coaches were not in the country. So I think he was thinking that way, and then once Navratilova said it, I think he, I think he realized he had to make you know that big move, and uh, so they you know he scrounged together some money and took a risk and came to the United States at seven years old with nine hundred dollars in his pocket, and uh, looks like uh, Yuri had some good vision because he obviously made a lot of good things happen. Uh, yes, definitely you would say so. And then, you know, he came over here and he couldn't get into the Nick Boletari Tennis Academy right away because Maria was too young. So he practiced with her for two years on public courts, I read, and waited till he could get her into the Boletari Academy. Yeah, I mean, you know, when they went there uninvited, everybody, from what I hear, tells me that she was, you know, obviously very special, but she was six years old and they were like, you know, come back in a couple of years. Right. Yuri just decided to set up shop in the area, and those two those two years, um, they don't really talk about it much. Um, Yuri describes it as survival. Um, I think you know, obviously, they didn't have much money. They couldn't speak the language very well, and I think those two years. I think sometimes when you see, uh, you know, that hug of Maria and Yuri after winning, you know, the two Grand Slams, I think that hug, you know, has a lot to do with what they went through those two years. Maria without her mother, you know, nothing, you know, no promises from anybody um, and a lot of sacrifice. And, uh, you know, for me, who's been around them for a long time, just have so much respect for what Yuri was able to uh, make happen. I loved the I Feel Pretty TV campaign. I thought that was the best campaign of the U.S. Open. Uh, it's such a catchy commercial. Talk about that a little bit and Maria's uh, tremendous relationship with Nike. Well, I mean, I think everything starts with Nike. I mean, they are, uh, they've been with Maria, I believe, since she's uh, 10 or 11 years old, um, and she's grown up with them. And, uh, you know, they just, they're just the best at what they do. And, and when they came to us with this campaign, you know, it's one of those as an agent where you just let Nike do their thing. Right. And yeah. you don't get in their way. And, um, you know, it was, it was brilliant. Maria loved it. And, it's, you know, these days, it's, there's not many tennis. Nike doesn't do too many tennis-related commercials, so I think it's a real honor for Maria that Nike wanted to do that. Um, I think one of the cool things that that commercial was wasn't so you know wasn't so much about tennis, but it was about a women's initiative. It was about you know don't judge a book by its cover. Don't 
don't underestimate Maria, and it's, and it's you know, empowering young women. So, um, again, Nike's the best at what they do. Uh, it was a real honor for Maria to be involved in that campaign. And, you know, it's funny, you know, everything always worked out for Nike. They did the campaign and she won the tournament. So that's uh, pretty cool. Well, and another thing Nike did during the U.S. Open is her tennis attire. At night for her evening matches, she wore the black cocktail dresses, they called it, which was also very popular. And I see that Maria is auctioning it off for her charity on her new website, mariasharapova.com. Yeah, I mean, Nike, again, you know, they were looking to do something special at night. Um, and it's funny, that dress, I've been I've been hearing about that dress for like eight months. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, that's how long it takes for these things to come together. And, again, the designers and the creative people. And Maria was involved in, you know, kind of what the look and design was. So it was a great collaboration. Um, and, again, it was a win-win, you know. It, you know, again, they're just the best. They have the best vision. And uh, Maria is very lucky to be with Nike. Let's talk about some of Maria's other deals. Canon, obviously, she's got a TV spot with them. They've been a longtime partner. And then I see that she signed a big deal with Prince Tennis Rackets. Uh, it sounds like it's a lifetime deal. Is that accurate? Um, yes, it is accurate. And uh, we just finished that deal recently. And, again, it's another relationship that Maria's been with Prince since she's 10 years old. Um you know, she could have let this current deal expire and go to the market and see what other companies were willing to pay her. She was adamant that she wanted to stay with Prince. She's been with Prince her whole career. She wanted to finish with Prince. So we went out and put a deal together that, that did that for her, that uh, um, allowed her to stay with the company she's been with her whole career. They've got this new technology that's absolutely unbelievable, uh, this Prince 03 technology. I'm sure any fans of Maria will see they've got some big holes in her rackets. And uh, it's really allowed her to lift the level of her game. Uh, she really believed in the technology. She was very involved in helping them with the technology to make it right for her. So, you know, it's a testament to her, you know, an athlete that, you know, had a chance maybe to go to another company for even more money, but really felt like, you know, her roots is with Prince and wanted to stay with Prince. So that's why we put that long deal together. Max, I want to talk quickly about her Motorola deal. After she won Wimbledon, I think one of the moments of that entire tournament was after the match, she was on a cell phone. She was trying to call her mother, and she couldn't get a reception. And I said to myself as I was watching that, here is a cell phone deal waiting to happen. Sure enough, in the not-too-distant future, it's announced that she's got a deal with Motorola. I saw after the U.S. Open, she was able to successfully place a phone call. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of funny how that all comes together. Um, again, it's one of those things that you can't plan for. If anybody was watching that, you know how real uh, that was. You know, her mom doesn't travel with her, couldn't get a hold of her mom. And, um, you know, as that's happening, you know, one of my colleagues, Alan Zucker, at IMG's National Sales Group is on the phone with his contact at Motorola. <laughs> and, be- and before you know it, by the time I leave my uh, the player box to get back, I'm on the phone with Alan, and, and very close Motorola is the first non-tennis deal that steps up um, and does a really nice deal uh, with Maria. And um, it's been a great relationship uh, for her. Um, they are... Uh, She's at, you know, everything that she's about, and uh, it's worked out great, and I'm, I'm glad she was able to get through to her mom this time. 
Yeah, that's great. So she does modeling, too. Obviously, she's a, a beautiful young lady, and she ha- even has her own fragrance out, uh, Maria Sharapova Fragrance with Parlu Fragrances, I guess. How much time does she spend in the fashion world and, and kind of outside of tennis? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. When we, um, after she won Wimbledon, you know, we had to make a lot of decisions on what her schedule is going to be like. She was very important for her that she wanted us to put deals together that limited the time so she can continue to focus on her tennis and be number one in the world. So we basically put a calendar together, put her tennis schedule, and we identified that there was probably about 12 to 15 days a year that she can give to sponsors and still none of these days would, would interfere with her tennis training and playing tournaments. We put a rule in place that she would do no photo shoots within four weeks of any tournament. And we started plotting it together. And then once we identified that there was 12 to 15 days, then we went out and did deals uh, knowing that those are the type of days. And there were some, some relationships that needed more days, and those relationships didn't work. But the Motorola, the Can, and the Tag Hoyer, they all understood Maria's dream to be number one, and they were able to structure deals that had limited time, um, you know, just enough time so they could get their marketing materials and do stuff. And that's kind of how we framework all the partnerships under those 12 to 15 days um, and really kept, you know, the focus on. I spent a lot of time with Mark Steinberg, who you mentioned, who obviously, uh, you know, knows what I'm going through, um, and he really tried to pick his brain. It was kind of his idea, kind of like kind of the blueprint that they do for Tiger, and it's, it made sense, so that's kind of what we did with uh, Maria. Max, it's uh, fascinating talking with you. Uh, guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to www.mortons.com. Hey, Max, thanks for making time to join me out of your busy schedule, and uh, congratulations on your uh, pending engagement. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take care. We'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Sports business radio you're a professional sports franchise and you want to make sure that your players say the right thing you need bbpr that's right brian Berger public relations you want the community to know that you care about them therefore you probably don't want your athletes sounding like this i really don't have much to say anymore my son and i are just going to enjoy our lives we're my family's tired. It's tired. I'm tired. You guys wanted to hurt me bad enough. You finally got there. When you so, say you guys, who do you mean? You, 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 media, everybody. BBPR offers media training so your star basketball player won't pull this classic. Uh, it was a good game. Both teams play hard. BBPR is your full-service public relations firm. With over 15 years in the industry, Brian Berger can help your image, especially if you're looking to get elected. Just ask this former candidate. <laughs> Don't play games with your image. Rescue yours today with Brian Berger PR. For more information, log on to brianbergerpr.com. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is a man who, in my opinion, is one of the best owners in all of the NBA, the co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, and the star of one of the best new TV commercials, the $6,000 Carl's Jr. and Hardy's Combo Meal commercial, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Good. So the first question I've got to ask you is, how did you and your brothers become involved in this TV commercial? I thought it was really cleverly done. 
We're a great. We're big fans of Carl's Jr. When we were in Sacramento, uh, we first bought the Kings. We lived next to Carl's Jr. <laughs> and we were there just about every other night. So uh, without Carl's Jr., we'd starve. So did they come to you and say, "Hey, I hear you're big fans, and we'd like to do a spot with you"? Uh, well, kind of a, through a, a friend of a friend, uh, one of those uh, type of arrangements. But uh, we met the uh, the president of the company, Andy Puzner, and just hit it off and. Uh, Hey, we'd like to do an ad with you. We said, okay, let's let's look at it. And uh, one thing led to another, and here we go. Well, and I thought it was really cool that you guys uh, slipped in a little promo for your hotel and casino, the Palms in Las Vegas, at the end of the spot. Well, we had uh, we filmed it at the Palms. It took uh, right. actually t- uh, ten hours to film, and uh, it was it was an entire production. I mean, they spent uh, a few hundred thousand on this commercial, so we. They put a lot of money and effort into it, and I, th- I think it came out very well. Yeah, I think it was great. Hey, Gavin, let's talk briefly about the Maloof family background for those who aren't really familiar with it. You know, you've had great success as New Mexico's largest beer distributor. You're also the largest single shareholder for Wells Fargo. Why don't you tell us briefly about how your family first built its fortune? Because I think it's a really interesting story started by your father, George. It was. Uh, we've been in business probably you know, over a hundred hundred years, and we've been Coors distributors for gosh seventy seven years. And um, we just recently acquired uh, Miller, so we have uh, every beer in New Mexico except for Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just just one thing grew to another, and we we got in the hotel business. We we built a small hotel in uh, Las Vegas called the Fiesta, and then. We sold that for $185 million and moved it uh, to the Palms, put all the money in the Palms. And then we purchased the Kings uh, eight years ago, and uh, here we are. We'll come back and talk about the Palms in a minute. But tell me, you know, your father passed away unexpectedly in 1980. You became the youngest owner in the history of sports. You were only 24 years old, and you're owning the Houston Rockets. How did that experience prepare you for now being the owner of the Kings? Well, it was a great learning experience for for me, you know, at the time, the NBA wasn't the multi-billion-dollar right. business that it is today. And uh, but I learned a lot. Uh, we had a general manager named Ray Patterson, and when, when I was running the Rockets, he was really my mentor and uh, helped me uh, school me on a lot of different issues of, of, of the NBA back then. And we've just we have a, a philosophy of catering to, to the customer and taking care of our employees, and we've just used that those same values uh, today, and it's, it's worked for us. So in 1999, you purchased the Kings from Jim Thomas. Um, you know, really, the Kings were kind of a listless, sleepy franchise before you guys came along and bought the team. What potential did you see in the Kings when you bought them in 1999? We wanted to, to, to really own a team. That was, our, that was my lifelong goal was to, to own a professional sports team. And... Uh, Really, the, the reason we bought the Kings is that they were the only franchise available, to be frank. And uh, we we paid a, you know, a hefty dollar at that at that time. We paid 237 million, which was a lot of money, probably over market value at that point. But we wanted to get in the league, and we knew that we could we could turn the franchise around, make it a brand, which now it's uh, it's internationally uh, recognized, and it's an international brand, and we're very proud of of our people that we've uh, hired and, and uh, that, have, that run the Kings, and we have a, we're proud of our organization that we've built. 
Well, and Jeff Petrie used to be here in Portland. I actually worked for the Blazers when Jeff was there. I think he's fantastic. And, you know, really, you guys came in and in no time turned that team into one of the best teams in all of the NBA. We did. We had, uh, as you mentioned, Jeff Petrie, of course, the uh, the architect of our team, and he's picked some unbelievable talent. He's got a great eye for talent. And, and then we have another gentleman, John Thomas, who runs our, our business operations. He's terrific as well, and we just put, well, we have a, a knack for, I guess, hiring the right people, and that's part of our success. Let me ask you about Las Vegas, not about you moving there or anything like that, but you have a hotel and casino there. What kind of a sports market do you think Las Vegas is? Currently, there's no major pro sports franchise in Vegas. Do you think, whether it's the NFL, Major League Baseball, or the NBA, do you think pro sports can exist in Las Vegas and thrive? Definitely. I, I've always been a proponent for sports in Las Vegas. I think that's probably the only thing that, that, that this city is missing. It has everything but sports, and sports is, uh, brings the community together, and it rallies all of its, its people together for one common goal. And That's what, this, what Las Vegas needs is a professional sports team, not, not any of the minor league teams. They need one of the big four, whether it's hockey, baseball, basketball, or football. Well, and it seems like the mayor and, and other people I've heard come out and support, you know, really saying, hey, we'll roll out the red carpet to get a pro sports franchise here. The mayor is uh, very proactive, and he has stated that on uh, numerous occasions that, that, that he won't quit until there's a, a team in, uh, in Las Vegas. And I, I believe there should be a team in Las Vegas. I think it, that's just the, the, the missing component to, to making this a, the great city that it is. Well, let me ask you another question that's been a little bit of a, a controversial issue. You know, the NBA's got this new code of conduct for owners. We saw Phoenix Suns owner Robert Sarver get slapped with a $25,000 fine this week for breaking the code. Are you a supporter of this code? I mean, without getting you in any trouble, did you think it was something that was necessary? Well, I'm a supporter, and I hope I don't become an offender. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, yeah, I don't want to. Ma- I don't want to get you fined. But yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm a supporter of it. I, I think uh, I'm a supporter of it. But you know, I think that, that the ownership to, should always talk positive about the league. We've always been um, a proponent for 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 David Stern. We think he's the best commissioner in sports. Done a wonderful job with the NBA and. Uh, as far as the owner's conduct, I guess we got to watch watch our step. I I think what happens a lot oftentimes is in the heat of the battle, you do things that you uh, look back and say maybe I shouldn't have done that, and maybe that's what happened to, to Robert Sarver. But he's a wonderful person, and uh, I'm sure it was just in the heat of the battle. Yeah, I've had him on this show twice, and I think he's a fantastic owner and uh, you know emotional guy. Mark Cuban, you guys, Sarver, you're kind of this new breed of owners that. You know, you guys get emotional out there, and, and if I owned a team, I'd be the same way. Sure, because we're all fans. Uh, Robert's a fan. I'm a fan. Mark Cuban's a fan. Um, we're all fans, and when you're fans, you get passionate about it. And we're like Robert Sarver. He's passionate about the Suns and Cuban about the Mavericks, and we're passionate. And we're all competitive, so we all want to win. And uh, sometimes uh, people go a little overboard, but uh, it's uh, – there's no harm in that. I think it's just uh, they're passionate about what they're doing, which is fine. We've got a few minutes left. My guest is Gavin Maloof, the co-owner of the Sacramento Kings. All right, Gavin, let's talk about the Palms Hotel and Casino. I'm a married guy now. I haven't gotten to Vegas in a few years. I really want to come down and see your hotel. I hear it is one of the best 
in all of the world. The customer service is second to none. Absolutely. Uh, we, we've been ranked uh, the number one hotel in the world by Expedia.com. We were very proud of that, uh, those accolades, and it's just uh, it's, a, it's a great experience to come to the Palm because you can experience a great service, the best food on the planet. We all we buy is the best, and uh, you'll come and enjoy yourself, and you'll feel at home in, in our establishment. So like you were saying earlier in the interview, you owned uh, the Fiesta Casino Hotel. You bought it in 1994. You parlayed it into what is now the Palms. Pretty good business deal for you guys. Pretty good return on investment, I'd say, so far. It was. You know, we uh, originally we we purchased some land in North Las Vegas, and we spent $5 million on the land. And then the hotel that we, we originally uh, built was only $20 million. And then uh, four or five years later, we sold it for $185 million and, and did a 1031 exchange with the Palms and put all the money in, in, into this facility. And, and now it's been a, just a, a grand slam for us. We're, uh, we're adding our third tower, which is 600 condo units. are all sold out. And we'll have uh, close to 1,500 total rooms on the property. And the NBA All-Star Game is coming to Vegas in February of 2007. You guys are the players' hotel. What else do you have planned for NBA All-Star Weekend? Oh, gee, it's going to be quite a spectacle. It will be the biggest event to ever hit Las Vegas, uh, February 18th. Uh, We're we're really excited about it. Uh, We are the player hotel. And, of course, all the restaurants, bars, nightclubs, rooms, Everything's going to be taken in Las Vegas, and uh, it's just going to be, uh, you know, mini Super Bowl here in uh, in Las Vegas. It's just going to be great for the NBA for the exposure. There's 220 countries that'll be uh, tuning in. We're very excited about the whole ordeal. Well, I'll tell you about one of these days. I see one of your suites that you have is a recording studio. I want to come do my national show from one of your recording studios. I think that'd be fantastic and experience your ho- hotel firsthand. Oh, absolutely. We'd love to have you. In fact, uh, we've had Jim Gray, uh, who does Monday Night Football, he's done it from our recording studio, and he said it's the, the best reception he's ever had. And uh, we, we recently had um, The Killers. They did they recorded their, Very their, cool. their last album here. They're from Las Vegas, and we've had Chevelle. They're friends of mine. They're recording their next album. Uh, so we're getting a lot of artists that, that use this recording studio. You'll love it. It's, it's a $5 million facility, state-of-the-art. Well, I'm going to have to come try it out. Hey, Gavin, thanks for joining me. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to www.mortons.com. Hey, Gavin, keep up the great work, and uh, love to meet you in person one of these days. Thanks for making time this week. Thank you, Brian. Anytime. Come out. Definitely will. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton's serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, 
Go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere, and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. He's the former president at the University of Oregon and Indiana University. Dr. Brand, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. So in a nutshell, you know, there's some people out there who don't know specifically what the NCAA does. They're not intimately involved with what you do on a day-to-day basis. In a nutshell, can you briefly describe for those people what the NCAA is all about? Sure. The the NCAA is a membership organization. Uh, Our job is to represent the over 1,000 universities and colleges with respect to their sports programs. But we only have the powers that are granted to us by our member institutions. We are not a professional league. I am not a professional commissioner. I am not the czar of college sports. Rather, we have certain uh, obligations in terms of enforcement and setting up rules about academic uh, eligibility and so on, but only as our members ask us to do it. So it's not really top-down. It's really uh, bottom-up is what you're telling me. Yeah, you're right. It, it is a bottom-up organization. We have incredibly many committees and participating uh, people on each of our campuses. It's a, a membership-run organization. And how many student-athletes are there approximately? I know there's a few hundred thousand, correct? Yeah, you're right. Right now we count about 380,000 in all three divisions. Wow. You know, you've done such an impressive job during your tenure at improving the graduation rates for student-athletes. From what I'm reading, they're actually better than those of of regular students. Can you talk about that and how you've been able to make that improvement? Yeah, that's that's a very important point you raised, Brian. Uh, Most people who follow sports fail to realize that college athletes graduate at higher rates than the general student body, that on average they come in with better SAT scores, and GPA scores, um, they are graduating in every demographic group higher than the general student body. For example, African-American male basketball players in Division One graduated higher rates, approximately 5%, which is a lot, um, over the African-American male general student body. Um, we don't give enough credit to the academic achievements of our student-athletes. What have you done to improve these graduation rates? Because, again, you know, during your tenure, they've improved substantially. Well, I I appreciate you pointing to me, but of course it was the work of many, including many of the university presidents. Uh, What what we're all concerned with is making sure that student-athletes come into the university eligible and to have the ability to graduate. We don't want anyone on campus who doesn't have the experience and the ability to graduate. Once they get to campus, then they have to make progress towards a degree. They have to make 20% progress towards a degree each year or they're ineligible to play. Uh, Moreover, we're holding teams accountable for the success, academic success of their students. So for example, if a team doesn't do well uh, academically, we'll take away scholarships and we have been doing that for a couple years now. And we're beginning to look at taking away opportunities to participate in the postseason, such as the Final Four. See, I think that's the big thing that separates you from your predecessors, if I may say, is, you know, now there's accountability, and if you don't get it done in the classroom, you're going to be accountable and you're going to lose the things that you just described. Let's talk a moment about the BCS. What are your thoughts on the BCS? And let me premise this question. In Division Two and Three college football, 
There's a playoff system. The NCAA men's basketball tournament, my favorite event. There's not a playoff system for Division One college football. We see bowl games. What are your thoughts on how it's working? Yeah, that, that, again, is a very important question. Just let me preface it by saying that, that the NCAA has no role to play in Division One A football, either in the regular season or the postseasons. That's run uh, by the conferences and their members, as, as well as the third parties, the bowls. Now, having said that, I do have an opinion. And I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system uh, in Division One A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division One A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. They want to uh, listen to the fans and have a championship game, and we're all looking forward to that in January. But they really want to emphasize the regular season. You know, I enjoy the basketball tournament, too. Like you, I think it's the greatest event in all of sports. Uh, but that makes basketball somewhat of a tournament sport. If you read the sports pages, we're already talking about who's going to make the NCAA. Whereas when you read the sports pages about football, we're talking about regular season, like the Ohio State-Michigan game. So there's a difference in the focus on the regular season in 1A football, and that's what the BCS tries to capture. So are you telling me, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that the NCAA doesn't set the plan for the college football season. Is that the university presidents and the BCS working directly together without the assistance or input of the NCAA? Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. Um, Because of a court case in the 1980s, uh, the NCAA was taken out of postseason football. And uh, that's been the case ever since. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. You know, I know earlier this week, Dr. Brand, you sent a 25-page reply to the House Ways and Means Committee in response to the pointed eight-page letter that you received from Bill Thomas, who's a Republican from California. He was the outgoing chairman of Congress's chief tax writing panel. Can you tell me why the NCAA should remain a nonprofit with tax-exempt status, even though, from what I've read, the NCAA generated uh, $4.2 billion last year? That's a lot of money. Yeah, the expenditure rate was about $7.75 billion, and it's supported uh, by means other than uh, the generated revenue. Uh, The main reason, the underlying fundamental reason why intercollegiate athletics is tax exempt is because it's part and parcel of higher education. It is not a standalone for-profit enterprise like the professional leagues, the NFL and the NBA, which are making profits for their owners, whether they're shareholders or individuals. The NCA is just a membership organization that oversees intercollegiate athletics on behalf of a part of higher education, just like the chemical societies and the philosophy societies oversee their disciplines as part of higher education. So we do, too, for our part. But it's all part of higher education. It is not separate. It is not freestanding. So the money that's raised, the tremendous amounts of money that are raised from CBS, from ESPN, from your television partners, that goes back into the universities to cover the other sports that aren't the basketball and the football, like the baseball, the soccer, the golf. Is that where that money goes? That, that's exactly right. All the revenue that comes into the NCA, the NCA home office takes off about 4% to run the administration of it. All the rest is distributed to the universities. Now, people think that's a lot of money, and if you add it all up from all the universities, it is a lot of money. But for, say, the Division I-A schools, the amount of money they get through the NCA because of the basketball TV contracts 
um, is probably less than 10% on the range of 5 to 7% of their total athletics budget. Dr. Brand, do you have any concern that Congress may pass a new law to make intercollegi- intercollegiate athletics taxable? And if they did, what would the world look like to you? Well, I think if you tried to professionalize all of intercollegiate athletics, it wouldn't work. So could they pull out, for example, men's basketball and football? I think what would happen is that it would turn it into third-rate professional sports. Why would anyone want to watch that then? If I'm going to watch professional sports, I'm going to watch the NFL, which is a darn good league, or I'm going to watch the NBA. I'm not going to watch the minor leagues. The reason why people enjoy college sports so much is because they are part of higher education. The avid college fan sees the sports, whether it's in Notre Dame or Indiana University or whatever institution you pick, George Mason, it's seen as part of the enterprise where those who participate are college students. When they're no longer college students but professionals, then they're in competition with other professional leagues and there's no reason to watch them. So I, I think we'd see... Uh, the demise of college sports as we know it in that case. The NCAA receives about 85% of its revenues from the sale of the TV rights. How much influence do your TV partners, CBS, ESPN, have with scheduling? Because, you know, this year in college football, we see an extra game. With basketball, we're seeing more and more games on the schedule. Do they have any influence in the scheduling of games? No, all our contracts specifically say that the schools make the final decisions when to show the games. Now, there are only so many windows in which games could be shown, and the TV companies, ESPN, CBS, can offer it up and say, you want to have a game on at such and such a time. The school could say no. Some schools prefer to have games during the week, uh, even a football game during the week, so at least once a year they can get on national TV. But the fact of the matter is the decision is always the school's. And then explain to me, I know I talked to to Wally Renfro about this last year, but the liquor advertising, a lot of people are critical because they say, listen, you know, students who, you know, you have the PSAs for don't drink and drive, but then there's some liquor advertising during the games. How much of that do you control or do you control any of it? Well, we do have policies about it, and our members, in fact, just recently uh, reaffirmed our policies and clarified them. The fact of the matter is you cannot show more than one minute per hour of alcohol advertising, and that only includes beer. We don't do hard liquor as as some uh, uh, elsewhere on TV is now being shown. Right. Uh, And the fact of the matter is we do monitor it very carefully. In fact, there have been ads that we would not like let go on the air because we thought they misrepresented the nature of higher education. Now, I concur that on campuses around the country, alcohol abuse is a very serious problem. And we also have a great deal of underage drinking. I certainly knew that as a college president, and it's still the case. Uh, Unfortunately, um, colleges and universities have a hard time getting control of it. Somehow, I don't believe one minute of advertising while watching the Final Four is the cause of that on campus. No, I totally agree with you on that. I just think it sends a little bit of a mixed message, but what you just answered is, you know, basically, you can only control so much of that, and if you are limiting it to one sixty-second spot, then that sounds like the best you can do. Dr. Brand, tell me about sports agents, and, and, you know, we're seeing sports agents really get to athletes at the high school level now, and then they're kind of infiltrating onto college campuses. Uh, you know, the Reggie Bush situation last year, other situations that have been high profile. What can the NCAA do to help police that better? You know, the vast majority of sports agents are good representatives of the 
of their clients or the athletes and, and work honestly towards those goals. They're experts in their field. But there are also some, uh, a minority, but some uh, unscrupulous sports agents who will try to take advantage of young people. Uh, what the NCAA does is have rules about uh, when individual players can be talking with sports agents, and basically the answer is uh, not while you're a student. Uh, there are a few little exceptions to that, but that's the basic answer. Um, and I think trying to control the unscrupulous agents is frankly not just a job for the NCAA, but it requires the schools themselves to police their own environments, and it also involves to some extent uh, the unions and the uh, management of professional leagues. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, I've always said I think it's a very tough thing. You know, the coaches and the staff and the athletic directors can only be so many places. You're not babysitting 18-year-olds 24 hours a day. So there's a certain level of trust that you hope that they don't get in trouble and that they do the right thing. I think that's exactly right. Our, probably our most important weapon here is education. Uh, we spend a great deal of time uh, and the schools spend a great deal of time helping to educate most, especially the high-profile athletes, about where the dangers are. We even educate their parents. doesn't mean it always works. Sometimes we do have some unscrupulous agents who take advantage and manipulate parents or young, young men or women. But for, by and large, I think it works reasonably well. Dr. Brand, we have time for one more question. I really enjoy your Mondays with Miles podcast on Apple's iTunes. Tell me about how that idea came about. Well, we have a, a young man uh, at the NCA headquarters who uh, really is tuned into the new means of communication and, and new media. And so uh, his name's Josh Center. And we, we do uh, Mondays with Miles. Every uh, week I sit down and talk with him. I try to be candid. And if you're listening to it, you know I am. Uh, it's great fun for me. It's a good mode of communication. And also because of this new media, it gives the audience a, a direct line to, to reply. And many of them do. No, I think it's terrific, and uh, again, in this new way of communication, uh, you know, it's being proactive from you, and I commend you for doing that. I appreciate you taking time with me this week. I know you've got a very busy schedule. Guests appearing during our Sports End segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to www.mortons.com. Again, Dr. Brand, thank you so much for making time. I'd love to have you on again in the future. Thank you, Brian. Good to hear from you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be back with our final segment. Every week, you listen to Sports Business Radio on Sirius Satellite Radio and Sports Byline USA. You subscribe to the SBR podcast so you can listen on demand. Well, now Sports Business Radio is offering more information between shows. That's right. Sports Business Radio is now blogging. The SBR blog is the easiest way to stay connected as Brian Berger issues his opinions and facts about the sports business world. SportsBusinessRadio.com is your gateway for the SBR blog, whether it's the podcast, this is the Sports Business Radio Podcast. Live show. Welcome. You have found the most informative hour of sports radio you'll listen to all week long. Or the blog. Sports Business Radio continues to be the leader in covering the business side of sports. Athletes, executives, and front office staff are reading the blog. Shouldn't you? The Sports Business Radio blog. Log on to sportsbusinessradio.com today to check it out. To Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the best of Sports Business Radio. Three tremendous interviews Max Eisenbud, Gavin Maloof, and Dr. Miles Brand. When we join up with you again next week, we're going to go inside one of my favorite sporting events of the year, the Masters. 
We've seen Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods, two of the biggest athlete endorsers in sports, go back and forth with this championship for the last few years. If uh, that pattern continues, Tiger should be due to win the Masters this year. But we'll talk about the Masters and a lot of the things they're doing on our show next week. We'll also talk about Major League Baseball as the season gets underway. A lot of thank yous for this week's show. Our guests, Max Eisenbud, Gavin Maloof, and Dr. Miles Brand. Our show staff, Nathan Roach. Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, and James Harris. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, Nike Golf, and the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast anytime you want by going to sportsbusinessradio.com and clicking on the podcast page. We're also blogging. Keep up with breaking sports business news at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm Brian Berger. I hope you have a fantastic week, and I look forward to joining you again live next week. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio.